Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm AP Andy. And we are joined by our returning champion guest today, Sham Khanna. How you doing? I uh, got caught in the rain on the way over here, so I'm a little grumpy, but uh, I'm stoked to be here. Oh, no. Um, oh, I should also mention that uh, Sham is the editor of Commune Magazine. He's not just a guy who gets caught in the rain. <laughs> and he's going to um, preview a little of what's in the new issue for us today. But um, first, I think uh, we wanted to talk about the Bernie rally, right? Yeah, we had a very on-brand weekend. Uh, yesterday, we went to the massive Bernie Sanders rally um, in uh, in Queens, uh, the three of us. Um, and then afterwards, two of us, not Sean, but we went to see the Misfits. So both instances of hanging out with uh, 20,000 plus people who share my worldview, either of socialism or uh, human Barbarism. annihilation via uh, <laughs> teenage mutants from Mars. You know, you got to have socialism and barbarism, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yeah, it, it was maybe the most goth socialist day that I've ever had in my life, probably. Oh, yeah. It's one for the books. For the black books. <laughs> <laughs> for the books bound in human flesh. But I'm, I'm curious, Sham, you're, you know, you're the editor of a communist magazine. What did you think of seeing uh, this social democratic circus in Queens. Well, I was a little on the fence about it for the um, first couple speakers, Michael Moore, uh, Nina Turner. But then when... You didn't um, like it when Michael Moore made a fat guy joke about himself? I thought that was pretty funny. (laughs) It was funny. (laughs) It wasn't very body positive. (laughs) Oh, fair. Okay. (laughs) But um, I mean, when when, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came up and called for a civil war between Queensbridge Projects and Long Island City, I was like, okay, maybe this is a bit more radical than what I expected. And then when she introduced Comrade Bernie, who promptly called for us to form Soviets and uh, seize power, I was like, okay, you know, this new uh, democratic socialism is, I guess, a lot closer to, it's a bit more up my alley than I I had maybe initially taken for granted. Well, I know you're joking right now, but there were a few phrases that I'm sure set your teeth on edge. Like, I feel like, I was being tested. I feel like we were all being tested a little bit. Like, how much shit can we eat as communists for the sake of this, like, bold social democratic thing that we all agree is good and better than any of the other options, right? So, like, they did it. Oh, they did it a few times. Like, the the thing that sock Dems do with, or even liberals when they're like, socialism is whenever the government does stuff. Right. Mm. And the more stuff the government does, the more socialist it is. Like Michael Moore totally did that um, when he was like, "Um, Americans love socialism already. We love public education. We love the fire department. And I was like, God damn it, Michael Moore. Why are you doing this to me? This is a guy that went to Guantanamo Bay to make a documentary about how good their healthcare system was. (laughs) (laughs) Do you guys remember that? No. It was in his. I think he just went to Havana. Did he go to Guantanamo Bay? I I think so. In that healthcare documentary, um, this is how the great American healthcare debate began. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> El Chapo is getting better healthcare than we are. Mm. Wow! <clears throat> All um, I want to be is El Chapo now. I just want the healthcare. You know. I feel like the the great thing about that rally was they would do these kind of uh, run on sentences with dramatic pauses that had you to see like 
they describe the democratic establishment and then be like, you know, clearly we're against that in favor of working class. And you're like, okay, Mm -hmm. revolution. Mm -hmm. And you're like, listening. Okay. At the ballot box. And you're like, (laughs) you were so close. You almost tricked me. (laughs) I know. That was the next thing I was going to bring up. Cause like, Working class revolution is something that we want and something that we're not going to get at the fucking ballot box. I'm sorry. It's not to say that you shouldn't vote. You should definitely vote for Bernie Sanders. Everyone who's listening, I hope that you do. But like, that's not how we're going to solve the problems. And another theme at this rally was they kept saying we're going. It's not just Trump. Right. He's a symptom of a wider problem. And I was like, yes, capitalism. Mm -hmm. And they're like, we're going to fix the conditions that gave rise to Trump. And I was like, yeah, capitalism. And then they're like, by voting for Bernie Sanders. And Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah. Oh, you. I think some of the people were using like code for capitalism. And I think like four years ago when Sanders was running, I I, kind of like was critical of all the enthusiasm because I'm like an ultra left wrecker or whatever. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, he's talking about the millionaires and the billionaires, but he's not talking about class. You know, he just wants to create a, you know, a nice social democratic thing in the U.S. And and now he is talking about class and capitalism a lot more. He's talking about class war. And like the fact that tens of thousands of people are coming out to see him is, is really exciting. Everyone understands the contradictions. I would just encourage people to listen to the Rev Left episode about Bernie Sanders. Uh, he just nailed everything that I, I think like. I have, like, deep criticism of Bernie Sanders. I don't think the project can work. At the end of the episode, Brett's just like, yeah, that said, I'm going to caucus for Bernie Sanders. I'm going to campaign for Bernie Sanders. Like, and I think that's kind of the right... Like, everyone just needs to do what they can do in this moment that they feel is effective. And if that's being, like, going all in for Bernie Sanders, then going all all in for Bernie Sanders. If you don't think that's going to work or you think you can be effective in some other way, do that. Anyway, it was kind of cool to, like, be... in that scene and see it firsthand and clapped and cheered and did the chance, you know, and just put my criticism aside for the moment, much like I did later when I saw the misfits. <laughs> <laughs> Let people enjoy things, folks. That's what I say. No, that's actually a really terrible cartoon and I hate it. I guess the question for me is what happens after the election? Cause yeah. I think that if we, you know, I think anyone that's read a little bit of Marxism or said a little bit of political economy, you can guess that, um, you know, in, in in this era of long term kind of structural not growth of the economy, the kind of um, kind of basic social democratic program or you know just reform program that the people in the Bernie camp of the Democratic Party and the DSA want probably can't happen. Um, but I think the interesting thing about the Bernie campaign is that he keeps emphasizing over and over again that, you know, I can't just do this through the executive branch or the legislative branch without there being millions of people in the streets willing to fight. And he kept saying over and over again during the speech, asking people to commit that they're going to be in the streets fighting, you know, for the the basic things that they want. And I, I think the interesting thing is you can look at other examples of a kind of um, movement for, you know, if you think about, say, Chile, when Allende came to power, a lot of um, a lot of working class people maybe um, saw the opening of a the small kind of reform program is the opening for 
um, their own kind of self-activity and maybe action in a way really in excess of what the kind of socialist government actually wanted or was asking for them. And that kind of created a crisis in which a lot more was possible. And so even if the kind of, uh, you know, I think the Bernie thing is tapping into a bigger desire to kind of fight for something different. And even if it's not achievable through the elections, the election might set in motion something weirder, more interesting that we should perhaps be attuned to. Yeah, word. So I agree with all of that. Um, What do we think about Bernie's insistence on calling himself a socialist or democratic socialist? Because I can see it from a, a number of angles. I can see it having bad outcomes and I can see it having good outcomes. Um, I've talked to people who know more about electoral politics than I do, who think that it's just going to be a liability. Like, he's not a real socialist. There's no reason for him to call himself that. It's going to alienate more people than it brings in. It's Um, bringing in tens of thousands of people. Yeah, I don't think people really care what you call it uh, when he explains what it is. And I think the Democratic Socialism speech that he gave was very good because um, he really defined what he means. Like when you say, oh, it means Medicare for all. It means free college. It means abolish student debt. It means a huge reform of the carceral state. Um, I think most people, most normal working class people would get on board with it. Um, what I worry about isn't whether or not this is popular. It's what I mean, because I, I always got my eyes on the prize, right? Mm. Like what is going is it in the long term? Is it going to increase or decrease the chances of having a social revolution in our lifetimes? And I think I could see it going both ways. Um, on the one hand, I think we've seen from the huge growth in DSA over the past few years. I mean, it's still only 60,000 people in a country of however many millions Right. Like it it needs to be a lot bigger in order to really move the needle. But um, like, I think there's something to be said for bringing people into the idea of socialism and making it not a scary word. And then maybe once they join something like, oh, the Democratic Socialists of America. That sounds cool. I'm down with socialism. I'm down with Bernie. People join it. They go to hopefully they go to political education. They find out what socialism really means. They find out Bernie's not even a socialist. He's a social Democrat. And then they join me on the ultra left wrecker poll of the DSA. <laughs> Which so, caucus is that? <laughs> um, shout out to my emerge peeps. Oh, my God. I'm going to get in so much trouble. Um, no, it's it's fine. It's great. You love to see it. Um, on the other hand, it's possible that by making socialism equivalent with this like warmed over post-war social democracy in people's minds. Um, He's going to convince maybe a larger number of people that that's what socialism really means. And once we get those things, we can stop. I mean, my sense of things is that the reason why, you know, so there's all these polls that show like 60 something percent of people our age millennials are against capitalism and maybe for something called socialism. But I think, a reason why all these new ideas are getting really popular in the kind of playing field, the marketplace of ideas is way wider, is because everyone kind of intuitively knows that the world that we're in is just in this deep crisis and is unwinding in these crazy ways. And so things that might have seemed crazy don't so much anymore. So in that sense, I think that the kind of the crisis in some ways is maybe more important than what people think um, or because I I think 
if there if there were a revolutionary deep social change on the table, it wouldn't be because enough people vote socialist, but because capitalism itself has these deep crisis tendencies that are kind of reemerging. But when moments to act do happen, people think about what they're doing and act based on their ideas. And so in that sense, ideas do matter. And I think in that sense, for people like us that want something more than Medicaid for all, but, you know, uh, the abolition of the state and the economy um, and something a kind of fundamentally different kind of world, then it makes sense. I think it's important for us to kind of try to do what we can now to build some common sense around something um, more radical than democratic socialism because, or at least hold up the space for something different because um, I don't know the way I guess that's just my sense. I'm being it well, right now. Uh, did you see Trump did threaten to destroy Turkey's economy the other week? <laughs> so maybe he's been reading his Gilles Dove. Or Ocalon, for that matter. <laughs> so, uh, Sham, the new issue of Commune is coming out. Um, so if you liked some of those ideas that Sham was just laying down, you'll find some of those in Commune. I think there's a piece by you in the new, the new issue, right? No. No? Okay. So what, what is in the new issue? Um, so this issue is really special because it's our fourth issue, which means that it's completing our first cycle as a quarterly. So we've existed for one year now, which, and printed on schedule, which is something that we weren't totally sure was gonna be possible. So we did a lot to make sure that this feels like kind of an event. Um, so there, along with the new issue, we're putting out like some cool new merchandise and the new issue is going to come with a special, um, zine, which is like a short novel that I think people will be excited about. It's a Western novel. Um, but in the issue, it's a Western novel about, uh, lesbian cowboys. um, Tell me more. And communism. I'm listening. (laughs) But, um, the premier essay in the issue is about, um, prison, prison boxing leagues in Louisiana. Um, one of our one of our writers joined a boxing gym in New Orleans and kind of realized that a lot of the other people he was training with had either become boxers or, or coaches while incarcerated. And as he begins to kind of like follow that thread, this kind of weirder story unwinds that there's these pretty significant leagues and with teams in all the prisons in Louisiana that have these tournaments in like the cafeterias of prisons um and there's this whole weird story behind it of uh some of the people involved some of the people in the boxing leagues are serious abolitionists or organizers and then he kind of follows that rabbit hole down further and it turns out that after the attica uprising in 1973 and then a series of other prison riots prisons all over the country started these boxing programs as a way to try to like as a pressure valve to try to calm people down. But then what ends up happening is all these people in the programs become like black Panther adjacent and it kind of spins out of control from that. And so that's, I think this pretty fascinating long form journalistic essay. That's the most exciting thing in the issue. We also have a number of uh, essays thinking through what the family means under capitalism and what the kind of abolition of the family, this phrase that's in the communist manifesto that seems a little crazy what that actually means and then we have a lot of short reporting and profiles from places like puerto rico where there's a big uprising and um other things in that vein is it just me or is shit popping off all over the place right now it sure seems like it the old world is dying as the new one struggles to be born right it's the hot fall 
Ooh. The hot autumn. Well, as Jake Flores said the other day, um, every season's going to be hot girl season pretty soon because <laughs> of climate change. Hot hot girl summer turns mm. into hot girl fall, turns into hot girl winter. <laughs> Only there is no winter anymore. You're going to love it. But yeah, I feel like this um, right now feels like the most kind of intense um, period of like social unrest or struggle since the Arab Spring in 2011, where all of a sudden 2011 it felt like everywhere in the world there was either a revolution or extreme social movement going on. And right now, I mean, just in the last week, there the government was almost toppled in Ecuador. There's these really intense riots in Santiago. Um, checking my phone, kind of in the break between this episode, it turns out that something big is going on in Honduras. And mm. at the same time, the movements in France and Hong Kong have gone on, been going on for this almost surreal amount of time. Yeah. So it's hard to tell if um, these are just the last echoes of the kind of explosion that started with the Arab Spring, or if we're at the beginning of a new wave of revolutions and what that would mean here in America. And Commune has just done a great job trying to stay on top of these things, trying to get people on the ground to report back and see what their li- the limits of these struggles are, how it's shaping up, or the potentials. So, yeah, subscribe to Commune, get a magazine, or just check out the site. Most of the stuff is available on the site. And uh, what role do you think that the uh, Joker movie will play in all of this, Sean, as things develop? I mean, have you all seen those photographs from uh, Lebanon where in the midst of these insane yeah. riots, everyone's paying themselves as the Joker? Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> but are they killing rich dudes on the subway? N- not yet, yeah. but uh, it's too early to tell. Man, I saw that movie with the wrong people, I gotta say. Should have gone with you guys. Fucking... Negative shout outs to Debbie and Nero. You don't understand me. They didn't like it. <laughs> Did they think it was a, a incel fantasy? No, no. But like, I mean, you know, Debbie's like a bleeding heart liberal. She she supports Bernie. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But uh, like, she just didn't like. Uh, she like didn't think that all those people deserved to die, and that the violence was senseless and bad. And Nero was like. Uh, he, I mean, he just gets bored really easily, <laughs> so he just didn't think the movie was very good, uh, which, you know, he's got high standards. And, like, I was trying to talk about, like, the class issues involved, and, like, like I know that we're probably supposed to think it's bad, but the idea of working class insurrection just, like, kind of thrills me, and it is something we're going to need to deal with and think about if we ever want to solve the problems. And they're both, like, horrified by the fact that I believe in... Uh, social revolution which will probably necessarily involve some kind of insurrection and i was like you know what come back and talk to me in five years when capitalism is in crisis like i don't like it either it's fucking terrifying i'm probably gonna die when it happens (laughs) but uh, the inconvenient truths I mean, we at Commune would never endorse or condone violence but there there's an old uh a wise man once said if you want to make an omelet, you have to crack a few eggs. <laughs> oh, my God. I got in so much trouble when I said that on the Majority Report. Um, With is... the vegan collar? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, is the Joker the new V for Vendetta? Oh. Seems like it. When we, when we retake Wall Street in 2020, will everyone be wearing Joker face paint instead of Guy Fox masks? It's very possible. The Juggalo Revolution has finally come. I knew the Juggalos were our comrades. Okay, so it's going to be a synthesis of, you know, the Joker and the Juggalos. It's going to be like Joker-los. And probably not the Misfits. The Misfits fans seem kind of 
old and comfortable. Reactionary, yeah. Um, yeah, so we want to shift from the Bernie rally to music and misfits, as we did yesterday. Um, so... So this being Halloween season, um, we thought it would be cool to talk about some goth and punk music. Um, also, we wanted to do a little preview for the benefit show that I am throwing this coming Friday at Transpicos in New York for uh, El Comodor, a mutual aid center for migrants at Tijuana. So what you're about to hear is our segment with Josh Strawn, who is half of the noise and dark wave duo Azer Swan who is playing the benefit on the line we have Josh Strong uh, one half of the band Azer Swan um, hey Josh how you doing Hey, I'm doing good. And, Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you so much for coming. Um, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. And so um, I thought it would be a good idea to have on Josh because I'm throwing a benefit show. Um, you may remember uh, a number of episodes ago, Andy was at a mutual aid center in Tijuana called El Comedor, and he did some interviews with people there. Um, and ever since then, I felt kind of a personal connection to them and I wanted to do something for them in return. Um, so I decided I was going to resurrect my crazy, freaky Halloween party that I used to throw. I didn't do one last year cause I was too busy with other shit. Um, and that it felt kind of sad. It felt kind of bad. So death rights is back and it's back as a benefit at trans Picos this coming Friday in Brooklyn. Uh, tickets are $12 in advance. 15 at the door and um, Josh's band Azure Swan is actually headlining this show and it's their album release party as well. Um, and we have some great openers, including uh, canal street electronics, which is a solo project of Mike Berdan from uniform, super good stuff. And pop 12 those old freaks, they're still on sacred bones. They're still playing shows. They're kooky and fun and wild. And they sound like the birthday party and you're going to love them. So, uh, yeah, last time we had Shaman, we uh, ambushed him with playing some songs from Blonde on Blonde, and he accidentally blonde pilled us and <laughs> got us into that album. So, we thought, speak for yourself, we thought it'd be fun to have him in again and talk about some other current music. Um, so I've got a, a few new rock bands <laughs> that we can listen to because. I'm very, I think we're all kind of out of touch with like what the kids are listening to. We're all here to talk about the new Frank Ocean single, right? Oh, yeah. Well, Frank Ocean, I mean, hip hop is clearly in like a very uh, good place right now. Do kids even listen to Frank Ocean still? I think it's mostly for 30 somethings. <laughs> I, re- I thought so. But uh, it seems like the big punk band or rock or like metal band that all the younger kids like under 25 or into is show the misfits me, show me the body clearly well they can't afford to see the misfits it's like a hundred dollars uh true you were recently shown the body at a um sneaker festival <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah we went to the i went to the house of vans uh like promotional skate thrash show and i was there as well show me the body play let's play a little yeah. bit of show me the body and talk about it the inside van scoop i was given by a band that also played is that if you play one of their festivals, free kicks for life. I hope that's... I saw one of the people leaving with free shoes, so hopefully that's true. 
Uh, but anyway, so this is a band that like people were the most excited for, I think, of the weekend. Oh, and... I was the most excited for Ceremony. Are you kidding me? But were, were people moshing as hard for Ceremony as they were for um, the Body? I don't know. Maybe. I think the, the, it was like a show me the body crowd there. But anyway, let's listen to them for a second and talk about them. They almost sound like a Death Grips cover band. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Oh, my God. I mean, in that sense, I like them because I like anything that sounds like Death Grips. What do you think, Josh? It actually reminds me a little bit. Uh, I don't know. There's a there's a an act called Cole on a, a Berlin record label. It kind of uses this sort of heavy sampled uh, approach to like a kind of like a screamed kind of almost like it's like metal music, but it's with like samplers. And um, I like Cole. I can't really say that um, that did a whole lot for me. Um, kind of a little bit. I don't know. Sounded like the Blood Brothers or something. Like which? How is that not good? I don't know. Well, live. So uh, the really unique thing about them is they have a banjo. It's like a very distorted banjo. So it's just banjo, bass, and drum. And uh, I gotta say, it really makes you appreciate the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> but they just play the banjo as if it were a guitar, right? There's no obvious yeah. banjo moments. But that like really distorted sounding thing is the banjo. Mm. At moments, they really do rock, and I understand why kids like pack rooms and go off for them. Uh, but they kind of rock in the same way corn rocks. Like they just they're just like good breakdowns and heavy parts. Corn is back Brett in the, amongst the kids, right? Yeah, corn and really? Slipknot. Oh, God. I was just dreading the day when the late 90s, early 2000s garbage came back around, and I think it's happening now. It's all coming back. I mean, I really like Uniform, which is sort of a better version of this, I think, and also has yeah. a tie into the show, because yeah. one of the dudes is doing his solo project there, and they're both super nice. And oh, yeah, and the other one, Ben Greenberg, will be DJing some jams for y'all. My question... No, I, I would agree with that assessment. That would... Yeah. Um, my question about the newfound popularity of Show Me the Body with its uh, uh, banjo-based punk rock is, does that mean we're on the cusp of a folk punk reemergence? Oh, geez. But it's coming back as, like, folk new metal. No, it means that we're in the middle of the same, like, gimmicky nonsense that we've been in on the internet for the last 10 years where somebody says it's a banjo, but it really just sounds like a sampler, and it... That appeals to people for some reason because it's a hook, you know? It's like something to say. Okay, so we are trash-talking this band, but I should say that the kids love it, and the kids are always right. So, And they have an incredibly diverse audience, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's way more more brown and young and kind of like different than the audience you would see at the uh, punk shows that we tend to frequent. Yeah, exactly. So... 
I fucking love idols. Every now and then, someone, like, just when you think punk is, like, a totally dead genre, someone comes along and fucking reinvigorates it AF. And idols is that band for me. They're just, like, a really good working class punk band from the UK with really good politics. They've got songs about how you shouldn't be anti-immigrant. They've got all kinds of working class anger. They're so fucking good. And they just like rock really hard. So let's listen to them. We've got to appreciate while we can before Brexit means we can no longer stream music made in the UK. That's a good point. My mother worked 17 hours, seven days a week. The best way to scare a Tory is to read and get rich. The best way to scare a Tory is to read and get rich. The best way to scare a Tory is to read and get rich. I don't know. I'm just sitting here looking at pretty colors. I don't know. I'm just sitting here looking at pretty colors. I don't know. I'm just sitting here looking at pretty colors. What do y'all think? Kind of sounds like Japanther with fake British accents. Mm-hmm. So uh, that gets my seal of approval. No, I, li- I liked it. Uh, it it reminded me almost of like uh, post Sleaford mods kind of like post like punk punk rock. Yeah, totally. Um, oh, you want to play one more song by Idols? You want to play Danny Nadelko off of the most recent album? much rocks i would say so it's got a good message with the kind of post-punky beat in the uh shouted political lyrics they kind of remind me of a certain 70s um communist leaning post-punk band that was pretty great and then became a less great neo-folk <laughs> neo-fascist band um, whoever who are you talking about conflict crisis crisis yeah conflict is still <laughs> Conflict is still bands. Yeah. yeah, great. Yeah, I guess there's a similarity to Crisis. Um, I also like the line that Idols has where he goes, "How many optimists does it take to change a light bulb? None. The butler changes the light bulb." Mm. Like he's got he's got some working class rage. I don't know if he has like quite a total critique yet, but he's getting there. I think it's really important in post Brexit Britain too to talk about how immigrants are not your enemies. And that combined with a strong working class message um, and, you know, obviously some brutal, sick riffs seems like a winning combo to me. For sure. Um, oh, you want to listen to the new Green Day song? OK, yeah. Green Day has really like. Um, have you heard this? 
I haven't heard it. Uh, is this from the musical? No, it it makes the American Idiot stuff seem like very good. This is this oh is, no, like when American Idiot came out and everybody thought, uh, "Damn, this is sad that Green Day sounds like this now." Yeah, this is like a thousand times sadder. Oh Jesus, this is a bummer. Green Day should not sound like this. It luckily sounds so different that it's not recognizable as Green Day, the way American Idiot was. Has he been hanging out with uh, Queens of the Stone Age? Like, that's kind of what it sounds like. He's even hanging out with, um, what's his name, the fascist. It also sounds a little bit like Bruno Mars or something. Mm. Sometimes bands just need to know when to break up. (laughs) That's when it's time to call it quits. Or with Green Day, you know, you made a couple good records, it's time to do something else. Well, American Idiot was kind of interesting in the sense that they came back and reinvented themselves in this way that was incredibly resonant and like... It was like the biggest album. It was a pretty good album, you know, if you kind of just forget that as Green Day. Uh, and it seemed it, it wasn't really making a political statement, but it kind of had the feeling of a political statement because it was about like a veteran and the war and like rural America or whatever. It was really the album of the moment. And now they're reinventing themselves again. And I'm wondering what this song says about the moment. Does it just mean that like rock has just devolved to a place of complete commercial trash that's just like written to be sold in commercials or um, yeah probably yeah yeah, i'm gonna go with that <laughs> you know i saw green day's other band that's just the same members of green day but they call it foxborough hot tubs right at south by southwest one year and i crowd surfed for the very first time in my life like i should have done probably in the 90s 10 or many years ago at an actual green day concert but it was like close enough and it's literally just I mean, they sound like Green Day. It's Green Day. But um, Billy Joe Armstrong dresses like Jack White. So it's a little, you know, it's a little garagey. It's got that vibe. (laughs) Um, Oh, so another band that's been on our radar lately is King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. And I just want to say before we listen to this song, um, I just want to warn you guys. King Gizzard fans are fucking psychopaths, so tread lightly. This is one of those MF Doom monikers, right? Dr. Octagon. kind of like tame impala sounding song i think they've got like a more rock and yeah song. and it's interesting because they also just put out a thrash metal album i'm curious why their fans are psycho because that's just like very like well executed psych pop like what are their who are who are the fans who are into this that are like that's a very good question come after you i think the answer lies in the king gizzard and the lizard wizard facebook group if you go in there 
Yeah, and the the one that I heard before this was kind of more like a stoner metal thing. So I guess they're pretty. Uh, uh, they've got a lot of different sounds going on. They're really committed to fucking up your Spotify radio. But overall, <laughs> they have a terrible name, and they look horrible. Like they, I really want to hate them based on how they look. But they do. They are kind of good. Yeah. I, They've got a pretty par for the course name for the kind of uh, psych pop revival going on. Well, I heard the name and I thought it was just like another fucking pizza party punk band that Debbie would make me go see. And she did. And they were like, I saw them play in the backyard of worship, which is a finished store in our neighborhood. Um, And then the next thing I heard about them, they were like this crazy virtuosic shape shifting band with a cult following. And I was like, really? Is King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard something I have to pay attention to? And, like, my friend Lindsay is one of the King Gizzard people. She invited me. Bless her heart. She's so she's more enthusiastic about the music she likes than any than I've ever been about anything in my life. Um, and she's, like, my age, which is impressive to still have that much joie de vivre. Um, but, like, she played a King Gizzard song when she was DJing at the DSA party that I put together in north brooklyn a while back and like the like two dudes there who were like crazy hardcore king gizzard fans just like got up on stage and started dancing like crazy and it was pretty funny according to wikipedia they've released 15 albums since 2010 oh look at them pretty impressive they are also the first rock and roll band formed in australia since the saints in 1976 (laughs) wow the more you know that's on Wikipedia. <laughs> no, I made that up, okay. but it's true. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on this, Josh? Before we segue, yeah, I mean, I was, uh, I was actually uh, years ago before moving to New York. I mean, I live in New Orleans now, but before living in New York, I was in two different bands. One was actually kind of a gothy, like uh, shoegaze type thing. Um, we were uh, glammy, also. You know, I was. That's the band through which I got introduced to like everything from like John Fox to like, you know, started to develop an appreciation for like T-Rex and Bowie and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, I was also in like a power pop kind of band and the main songwriter in that band was a huge fan of, of stuff like that, including, you know, uh, as well as things like the replacements and guided by voices. And so that was like my party crew and I heard music like that all the time. And I have a, I do have a, like a kind of like affection for it. It reminds me of, you know, 15 years ago, but I, it's good. I like it. It's well done. Well, you can join that Facebook page and uh, commune with all of your fellow King Gizzard. I'm going to unjoin all Facebook pages. So (laughs) that's Um, the direction I'm going in. One thing you guys should know about Josh is he's constantly threatening to deactivate his Facebook did you ever uh, did you ever do that, Josh? I am in the process. It's a very it's actually an incredibly complicated situation. Uh, the like, amount of contacts that you build up over like 13 years on Facebook, the amount of, you know, people that you have to make sure you've like got their number and like you're not. So I'm probably going to deactivate for a couple months so I can come back on if I forget something. But I'm definitely deleting permanently in the next month or two. I have a friend who deactivates his Facebook or or he cha- he changed his password to something and he gave it to a friend so he can only log in with his friend's permission and he has to like hmm. email her and get to send it to him and then he changes it again so he can only use it for like in case of emergency basically damn yeah that makes sense 
It's, I mean, it is addictive. I personally find myself less addicted to Facebook lately and more addicted to um, Instagram. Although Facebook does own Instagram, yep. so I'm still technically addicted to Facebook. There was that uh, Zuckerberg business meeting recently where he said, our business model is just to become the economy. <laughs> like yeah. They're just trying to launch their own currency and that you can like spend through WhatsApp and uh, and they're going to like try to make Instagram into TikTok and yeah, they just like they... well tiktok is praxis we've established this i think they gave up on uh on like the facebook aspect and they're just trying to become everything now this is that accelerationism they've always been trying to become everything though it's sort of the nature of the business model this is a major to assimilate everything you know oh god i don't you hate to see it um this is a bit of a digression but i'm curious um do you let your daughter use any of these technologies, Josh? Um, actually, it's been really, uh, it's been weird in the last couple of months. She's uh, gotten, uh, she started using YouTube and it's horrified me. It's kind of accelerated my, my sort of need to get away and to get off and to actually kind of both like practice what I preach, but set an example because like she's watching, it's like watching, she's six years old watching you know i mean i mean pretty much in the last 4 years or so i've 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 detached from almost from most political reading and 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 preoccupations except for like the politics of tech and politics of big tech and uh so i i spent a lot of time reading about like you know everything from like critiques of how addictive technologies are created to like instruction manuals written by successful people who make them and to watch your six-year-old get hooked on YouTube in three months is dark. Yeah, I can imagine that wouldn't be a good feeling. So, so yeah, like, I'm, what I'm, can like, you do? I'm trying to figure her, her favorite show right now. I mean, this is something she found just because the algorithm and the, the autoplay and stuff like that is a show called Sis versus Bro. And uh, it's just it's it seems innocuous at first as these kids are making slime. They're like having, you know, doing all these kind of challenges and then you sort of start to realize that they're that they're, they're making millions of dollars from the show and the show is sort of grooming this uh sort of like desire for like gucci bags and like iphone x's in like six-year-olds it's it's bananas that is incredibly creepy that's when it, it's one of the most successful shows for kids that age sam's daughter uh, was into the slime for a while I think she might have moved on to yeah, the slime um, Cardi B since enough, then. But <laughs> you'd be surprised how many gateways they find with the slime to sort of like get into your child's brain. You're talking about Nickelodeon? <laughs> no, no, like like slot, like so. It's a big, it's a big trend on YouTube to sort of kids make all these different kinds of slime and the color and the consistency and the sounds that oh, it makes. And yeah. there's there's like ASMR slime videos and it's. It's a whole industry. <laughs> it's a whole thing. I mean, they. it sounds like they did rip off Nickelodeon, right? Because that was the whole thing. Everyone got slimed. It's got like DIY not Nickelodeon. To, not to date myself. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, so speaking of bands that change their sound and shapeshift in interesting ways, um, the new Azur Swan album is an interesting departure from the sounds we were hearing on the old ones. Um can you tell us a little bit about it, Josh? Uh, yeah. Well, it's um, Zora's been spending a lot of time in New Orleans in the last year or so, 
And um, I've kind of just gradually been accumulating, you know, a little piece of gear here, a piece of gear there. And um, our, our process has become a lot more fluid and a lot more pro we become a lot more prolific you know we're we're you know making songs you know several songs a week uh so a lot of what we do sort of uh tends to just be like what whatever whatever instrument that we you know so i'll, I'll get like a drum synth right uh there's a there's a moog uh synth called a dfam it's a drumming a drum synth and so that tends to like render really uh, rhythmic, groovy kind of uh, sequences. And then we've got other stuff that's really noisy. And sometimes we just make noise, you know. And so we've been just accumulating all this work. And uh, this was the noise stuff, basically. Um, we decided we had to kind of group it, you know. And we, we even, we even con contemplated like putting this under a different name. But we were like... Uh, this is still us, you know, it's still what we do. It's still, it's still almost a continuation. You could go one of two places almost from our last record. You could go someplace really noisy and really harsh, or you could go someplace more melodic, more like some of the earlier records. And so we decided to call it as our swan and just put out a noise record. <laughs> Take that Billy Joe Armstrong. If you're still going to sound like green day, you should call yourselves green day. If you're the same members, call yourselves green day. Uh, this, not, was far, this was far more of a departure than uh, fucking Foxborough Hot Tubs was, and they still call themselves <laughs> Azure Swan, so there. Do you, um, should we play let's play some of, of it. Yeah, yeah, let's play some of their uh, their old stuff. good that's pretty cool i like that yeah as you can hear their old sound was i i feel like i any way i describe it josh is gonna take issue with it but like uh pretty good danceable kind of dark wavy pretty female vocals kind of band yeah works for me no okay <laughs> and should i play hissing of a paper crane sure
of skip a little bit later in the song. It builds for a very long time. like this track um the beginning especially kind of reminds me of jenny vall a little bit who okay. i interviewed before and is a pleasant genius um but like nice. maybe combined yeah, yeah fucking love her maybe combined with like throbbing gristle or something more harsh and industrial and then as it builds towards the end it kind of reminds me of patty smith just that like ecstatic style of poetry that's very cool yeah yeah no i mean it's very um the the whole thing came together. It's probably the freest thing we've ever made in a way. Like it's just not, it's not really, Sora and I kind of tend to compose a lot, you know, and like, um, when you're like working on a computer or you're working with synthesizers, you know, like, you know, songwriting, you're writing these, these different discrete parts, verse, chorus, riffs, and all these things. And this is just, this is really us just making, noise and like inviting our friends to send us stuff you know i mean the the list of collaborators on this record is really cool um and you know we would we would just kind of they would bounce off of something we sent them and then we would bounce off what they sent us back and and um yeah it was super fun and i've you know i mean zora's i've i've uh, i've known her so long and i know her her like range of vocal tastes and talents you know and uh and I was really my my thing with this was I really wanted to kind of like get more to the to the like Laurie Anderson and Diamanda and this kind of, you know, end of things that I know that she loves and appreciates and has in her repertoire, but hasn't really come out in what we make till now. Hell yeah, I'm here for it. I'm really excited for the show on Friday. Um, and I think you said some of your collaborators will be appearing yeah guests. we're actually gonna have doug uh moore who did uh vocals on the last song on the record is gonna come uh do vocals he's the, he's the the vocalist in this uh really kind of experimental death metal band called piron and uh he's the one you know zora only did like textural sound you know vocal sounds on that track he did he did all the lyrics and uh and it's a really cool really intense i mean everything on the record's pretty intense but uh yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Oh, me too. It's going to be so good. Um, and I know you guys are like thoughtful, political people. Um, and, and that came through in some of the lyrics. Um, and I know you want to talk a little bit about anti-fascist music, but like, what, what were some of the political themes in this album? Like, to me, it sounded just like the sound of the world dying in chaos. Yeah, I mean, um, Zora and I kind of have an interesting, I mean, it's, she's the driving force behind as our swan. Um, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm almost like the consult, you know, like a consultant more than a director, you know what I mean? Um, and we actually have done a lot, um, lyrically with like cut up technique, you know, which is some, it's been used a million times. Like David Byrne used it on, uh, remain in light, you know, uh, just have all this way, you know, and, and Zora had all this writing, you know, it was just like, and it's very kind of 
cathartic, intense, obviously things that she's personally been feeling, uh, over the last several years. Uh, and I, I just kind of took it and cut this here, cut this there. And, uh, I guess that kind of almost segues into some of the, the, the conversation about like anti-fascism and music. Cause it's like, it's like the, for me, uh, this is somebody who like lives a, you know, lives the ultimate, <laughs> one of the ultimate experiences as a marginalized sort of, you know, Muslim female in the Trump era, you know, like when people are coming for your citizenship and all the, you know, coming for your, your, your family, you know what I mean? Uh, I'm, I'm, she doesn't process it, that process that from a soapbox, you know what I mean? Um, it comes out poetically and, and we kind of, you know, she, she put that together and then I kind of just chose parts that they, they don't necessarily have a didactic, um, logical order. You know what I mean? Uh, like line one doesn't come after line two because, because it's logically supposed to, these are just expressions. You know what I mean? Yeah, but totally. It's like vibe taken piece. to get taken together. This is like, it, it, it feels political, you know, you can listen to it and you're like, you're like, you know, she's screaming, there is no justice. Like that's, you know, uh, I, yeah, it's I not an essay. I, it's a poem. Yeah, exactly. And, um, so that's, I mean, I would say that's really where the, po where the pol politics land, um, in a sort of expressive space, not a, a sort of like, it's not punk rock in that kind of like soapboxing, like you're supposed to, this is not a manifesto, you know what I mean? Um, but it, it's a feeling and we all have, you know, we all kind of tap into these feelings during these moments, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's good in a way because, um, those punk rock manifestos can get really preachy and annoying if they don't do them just right. And, uh, sometimes I'm like, well, maybe you guys should stick to fucking, I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example of this. I feel like Andy knows more about punk than I do. Oh yeah. So I have this theory about punk that like, although I love anarcho punk and I, you know, basically am an anarchist who likes punk, the more on the nose you are, the less good it is. So for example, um, Downtown Boys is a good example of a band that I just really can't into, can't get into because. Oh they're... yeah, we saw them at the Deathmatch too. Yeah, like I, besides not liking them very much musically, just when when the politics is just like too overt, uh, it just totally ruins it for me. Even if I agree with it, whereas something like uh, like Bikini Kill is a really good example of something I really like because their politics are like weird and satirical and like over the top and like funny. Liberal. <laughs> well, I mean. Part of the tension of Bikini Kill is is that uh, Kathleen what is kind of a liberal, like a liberal feminist, kind of. But then Toby Vale was more like into like radical feminism and queer theory and Bernie Sanders, black liberation and stuff. Um, but that you know that was all in the nineties. So that's an interesting tension in the band, and it's interesting to see like bands that have those kind of different political tensions. Like the Ramones is the best example. Oh right? yeah, uh, where Joey was a liberal, but. Uh, <laughs> like Johnny was like a super right wing. I mean, they were all anti-communists, but uh, it's right. I, I'm always interested in decoding these these political like subtext subtextual lyrics in the songs. I like that a lot more than just something like Naked Aggression that just like tells you 
their message over and over again or anti-flag. Well, right. And I I think that that kind of goes to like, um, I feel like there was a time (laughs) that there's, there's, there's the, the, the philosopher Byung-Chul Han has a great expression, the inferno of the same, uh, to sort of like talk about like how every, everything, especially when it gets codified into digital media, it just sort of bleeds into the same. We talk about it sometimes. Mm. Uh, I talk about it when I talk about uh, like the politics of the music industry with like the flatten or, or media in general, the flattening of content. Right. And it's like um, it's like I'm much more interested in um, hearing Mark Fisher talk about Marky Smith the politics of Marky Smith than I am interested in hearing what Marky Smith's personal politics are from his songs. You see what, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's kind of where the Nick Cave thing comes in for me. Like recently, I'm just like, I don't necessarily care. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, Oh, let's I, explain I mean, what the Nick Cave thing is. Well, I mean, it, it, there was a, the, the, the thing he, I, I, he was answering a question about, um, what are Which I thought, I thought was a nuanced question and a nuanced answer about like sort of why how do you how do you sort of like not get involved at this sort of like kind of uh, specific level politically? How do you stay sort of detached in a sense? And he was just kind of like, well, you know, he gave this answer and a lot of people zeroed in on this idea that he had said Antifa and the far right are the same thing. He kind of did equate them, though. Like, I feel like we should well, read what the quote yeah, is. Well, if I see... This is what I hate about the way that um, like news stories are manufactured is like is like if you've been on the Internet for the last four or five years, then you know that like somebody is saying something negative about what culture is is viral media. It's like clickbait. You know what I mean? So to zero in on what he says about that, like if it if this were five years ago, you would have zeroed in on what Nick Cave said about new atheism because new atheism was, was a very sort of heat seeking sort of idea. Nobody paid attention to what he's saying about new atheism, but like the point being, he's kind of saying like, if you, if you, if you draw back, he's saying, uh, I think that there are things that happened before politics that are my responsibility as an artist to address you know, the heart, et cetera, things like that. And I think when we get into this thing of like, like trying to build a news story out of like, like an artist's like didactic politics or like what they say in an interview about their allegiances, you lose that thing that you're talking about where it's more interesting to have people who are critics draw out the politics from artists than it is to have to collapse the artist into the politician. There's always more to art also than what the artist would say about their work. Precisely. Oh, yes, yeah. Yes. Please, please don't ever use that word unironically. It's just <laughs> really setting yourself up for horrific failure. Of course, this person was from Portland. Right. Um, he has this part where he talks about Antifa and he said, Antifa and the far right, for example, what's this an example of? He says, regardless of the virtuous intentions of many woke issues, it is its lack of humility and the paternalistic and doctrinal sureness of its claims that repel me. Antifa and the far right, for example, with their routine street fights, role playing and dress ups are participants in a weirdly erotic, violent and mutually self-sustaining marriage propped up entirely by the blind, inflexible convictions of each other's belief systems. It is good for nothing except inflaming their own self-righteousness. 
And then he goes on and says the new atheists and their devout opponents are both bad. Um, but like as a supporter of anti-fascist work, I kind of take issue with how he's characterized it here. But so well, I, th- I think that for me, the, the, the thing with, with any, any situation, any, any quote like that, like if I was with Nick Cave in the room, I'd be like, which Antifa do you mean? Like, you know, I mean, we can't sort of like say we can't lecture people about how Antifa is a decentralized, not a, not a monolithic organization. Um, uh, and then sort of like say that they th- sort of if you can't characterize Antifa as evil, you can't characterize Antifa as bad either because it's sort of baked into the decentralization of the group. You know, some people will act badly under its auspices you know me uh, probably from like my social media thing i'm I'm very big into re-energizing the secularism of the left indeed <laughs> and um nick yeah. cave's sort of biblical like religiosity is always uh, kind of graded at me a little bit and for me like what he's he's not really saying much different than i would expect to like come across in a roomy book you know what i mean it's this sort of like the poet's sort of like oh you're you're all being mean to each other but if you could just see through the fog you would see that everyone's this you know it's like both sides many sides it's it's, it's yeah, and, and i think it's great that we're kind of having like a re like a you know i mean i see it sometimes now and in, in like you know talking about like the problems with like religious teaching about forgiveness in terms of abusive relationships and we're we, you know we're obviously asking questions about whether or not these kinds of like received wisdoms ancient wisdoms are valid for dealing with specific political problems i mean i'm not you know i'm definitely like generally going to be on the the side of antifa uh when it when there's fucking fascists in the streets you know but um Mm -hmm. i just i think with artists you should i think with like (laughs) old artists who fancy themselves poets and religious people it's like just just be like well what do you mean like you know what what tease it out like what what is antifa to you are you talking about like because there are some cosplaying goofballs that kind of like there are they are taking their like facebook comment wars to this the sidewalks and then there's then there's like charlottesville uh speaking of musicians with surprising opinions on fascism um i found out comrade billy joel actually said something quite a bit better than what we just heard from nick cave of all of all people did you know that this drunk old long island man had uh good politics i didn't um so he wore a star of david on stage at madison square garden when he played there recently and in 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 an interview with vultures david marchese he explained it he said and i quote wearing the star of david wasn't about politics to me what happened in charlottesville was like war when trump said there were good people on both sides there are no good nazis there are no good Ku Klux Klan people. Don't equivocate that shit. I think about my old man. Most of his family was murdered in Auschwitz. He was able to get out, but then got drafted and went in the U.S. Army. He risked his life in Europe to defeat Nazism. A lot of men from his generation did the same thing. So when those guys see punks walking around with swastikas, how do they keep from taking a baseball bat and bashing those crypto Nazis over the head? Those creeps are going to march through the streets of my country? Uh-uh. I was personally offended. That's why I wore that yellow star. I had to do something, and I didn't think speaking about it was going to be as impactful. Comrade Joel, everyone. Yeah, good. I mean, it's a it's a better it's a better statement. I would I would probably just disagree that they're in as 
as stark as an opposition as as maybe some might say. I mean, I, I really think I, I guess. So, so, so look, from from my perspective as a as a musician who's like like worked has a lot of intense political convictions and ideas and background and has worked. I mean, the first Blacklist record is the most political record I've really ever personally made. I mean, I've been I participated in records, you know, Zora definitely has uh, her own uh, political ideas and we, we vibe on a lot of the same ones. Uh, but so for me, the, you know, the first blacklist record was extremely like, like the manic street preachers meets the sisters of mercy was, was the idea. You know what I mean? It's, it's a very left wing anarchist, um, anti-nationalist, um, sloganeering, you know, it's a manifestoing record. Um, and I did that I did that for five years. Um, I was very proud of that record. And we did, uh, you know, um, we eventually split up and I made a record after that, that was like going the opposite direction. It was very, there were still political undercurrents, but it was, it was very imaginative and it was very abstract and it was very, it was not, you couldn't, you couldn't discern that record, the first of our records politics, you know what I mean? And I did that on purpose. It was, it was all about hiddenness and it was all about obscurity. And, and, um, but by the time we made the last record, I could like the political themes were, were kind of seeping back in and, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't know it immediately to listen to the record. But, um, to me, I was trying to, rather than, make a manifesto like the blacklist record was, um, to kind of zero in on the emotional qualities of what it's like to live, to, to, to sort of be facing down apocalypse, like environmental apocalypse to be, to be dealing with the kinds of like dehumanization that is rampant, you know, thanks largely to right wing politics. Um, and to me, a lot of that was like getting at a, a sort of emotional state and a in a in a state of humanity that that is actually it's kind of it's the result of politics, but it's also pre politics in a sense. And so, when Nick Cave talks about wanting to like heal the heart of the world and not wanting to like deal with in ideologies, I think that I think that we need to like let artists sort of stake that ground and just be like. I don't, I don't want to commit on this side, you know, not, not that I don't want to commit like, cause he's, he's obviously even hedging a lot or, 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 or making a lot of, um, distinctions. Like I think conviction is great, this and that, you know, like, but I think that it's, it's okay to like talk about the, these levels of the political or, or the pre-political because they tend to be like we were saying before they tend you can still analyze them politically as a critic and as a listener they don't cease to be political we know everything has these political dimensions you know what i mean but um yeah Art that's, is almost I'm, I'm sorry I'm, I'm, going, I'm on a i'm on a digression but i, I feel like i think i think billy joel's quote is great and i think nick cave's quote is also mostly great i would i would have quibbled with him were i in the room uh on the points that i think we all sort of quibble with him but I, I don't think it was some sort of like full throated <laughs> declaration that 
that uh, the fascists are the same as the, you know, the anti-fascists. Both sides. I mean, I hope not. I mean, yeah, I think you're right. Nick Cave is kind of like some fucking, uh, like he's a happy peace, like preacher poet dude. Like, I don't really expect him to be that political. So I wasn't that surprised by it, but it was still like, oh, Nick Cave, I've been listening to you since I was a child. (laughs) Why you got to do me like that? I don't know. Um, So I guess maybe this is a good segue into talking about um, uh, either. I mean, we could go one of two ways. We could talk about like anti-fascist music that we like, or we could talk about like problematic faves that we have. Because I know uh, it's not always easy being like a Jewish uh, goth uh, communist to uh, navigate those waters of the music that I like while, you know, making sure that I'm not like accidentally giving my money to Nazis or whatever, or like even a less intense example of that, like Swans. Swans is one of my favorite, still one of my favorite bands of all time. And I believe that Michael Gira probably raped that woman. So like, what do we do with that? I'm not totally sure. I mean, obviously we love the misfits, so (laughs) we can't pretend that we have any kind of, purity in our taste um i would just say that you know people should like whatever they like even if they like something that is totally fucked up like the misfits can be or like more right-leaning bands can be if you like it there's nothing wrong with that that's just consumption but when you start like wearing the shirt or like going to the show like spending money to go to the show like uh i mean to me that people who like went to see death in june like knowing full well that they're a fascist bands they're, I mean, they're just kind of out of my life. Yeah, like, they can fuck off. It's hard, hard for me to... I, I think people like didn't know before 2016 that there are stakes to that and that there are Nazis in the world. Um, so maybe some people regret that, and I get that, but... Well, the stakes are higher now. But if you listen to the band and you like it, I don't care. That's fine. Like, I was trying to explain this to... I don't want to call him out by name because he's my friend, but a guy who is in a band with another guy who we have some issues with and I was trying and he was like trying to laugh off the like the Antifa stuff the protests of his band and the things that people say about them in the press and I was like dude it's not a fucking game anymore like it never was but like there are immigrants in concentration camps right now in this country so maybe like I don't think it was ever really okay to like play around with fascist imagery without necessarily like saying anything with it. I think that's a really dangerous game. And it's one that a lot of people who were kind of doing it to look cool have like run away from in recent years as they've, you know, realized like, oh, holy shit. Like I'm a privileged white person and I'm thinking about politics for the first time in my life. And this is actually pretty fucked up that this is happening. Just really quick. I don't know if it's dangerous. So much as it's just diluted. Like Throbbing Gristle was was really well known for using uh, like shocking imagery, fascist imagery without like making an explicit political statement. And they made statements before saying that the the point of doing that was to to like shock people out of like like a sleepwalking state or a non-critical state and make people more mentally aware and uh crass actually like penny rimbaud had like a big issue with that at the time and so their take was to be very overtly political and more explicit about what they're talking about and i think both approaches are okay but i think it's very naive to think that if you just use fascist imagery out of any context or out or like without 
actually explaining what you mean or something it's gonna like take away the power of fascism or fascist imagery i think that's just like proven untrue by the direction that that scene took i mean for me there's a couple prongs to this like like I think as a again as an artist with like political convictions, I I reached a point um, several years ago where I was kind of just where I feel like I sort of came to terms with the idea that like this this sort of idea that like music can change the world, music can make everything better, you know, uh, was kind of a conceit of. The musicians and counterculturists, like like music, more accurately reflects a political mood than creates one. You know what I mean? I, that's that's just what I genuinely believe. I, I don't I don't really think that like you get um, punk out because of the bands. I think you get punk because of the political conditions, right? So so for me, I kind of came to a point like where what what felt like to me was a a humbling of like the artist conceit, like I will create a better political situation by having good politics and music. Right. Um, But so what's the the weird inverse of that, even though I I kind of like have gone into many heated Internet battles, like be asking people like, why are you okay with the fascism in this black metal band or this neo-folk band? Uh, The flip side is that like, now since 2016 like you say you know people are paying so much more attention but it's like it's almost gone the other direction everybody's like oh we have to like fix the music scene because we have to fix the world and it's like not really because if if music if if musicians aren't going to like change the world for the better then the nazi musicians aren't going to change the world for the worse we're dealing with like deeper political conditions and i think that I think a lot of this tends to be like way too much sort of like what plays well in our like in our like social media back and forths, you know, because at the end of the day, like if you get death in June to play fewer shows, you're not really I mean, (laughs) fascism is so deeply connected to political economy that like, I, I don't know, it's. You want, you I, pers- want I personally don't, don't want to go out and like like buy like T-shirts by Nazi bands, but I I think that we've kind of reached this weird sort of inversion where like people cared too little before, and now there's this thing of like you know we're gonna fix the world if we just purify our culture, and that's the Steve Bannon thing to me. The politics is downstream from culture. We'll we'll get all the all the bad ideas out of our art, and then suddenly the world would be fine. I don't I don't buy that. Well, I don't think anyone's under the illusion that not having Death in June play shows is going to make the world better or defeat the you know economic conditions of fascism or the political roots of fascism. But it's nice to go to a venue where there wasn't a Nazi band playing the night before and nice to know that the people who work there don't have to deal with Nazis coming into their venue um, and have to deal with them drinking next door and starting fights. It's good to have oh, a, sure. a culture that doesn't welcome any of that. And has a strong line, even if their politics are terrible in other ways, a strong line against overt fat. Like that's at least can be a red line is overt, explicit fascists. Well, maybe like aesthetics can't change the world either way. But I think we all probably know that the existence of there being the existence of there being a kind of uh, a punk scene with a certain common sense 
um, or like a DIY scene 10 or 20 years ago is probably the reason why a lot of us found a certain kind of anarchist or left politics. And so maybe the point is that if there is kind of IRL spaces around a kind of counterculture that fascists can meet each other and promote their ideas, that can lead towards things that aren't aesthetic and maybe have realer consequences. And maybe that's maybe that's why it matters more to not have kind of safe spaces for those kind of shows in New York or in Brooklyn. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, Christian Picciolini, I think I'm pronouncing his name wrong, but Sam had him on the show on majority report recently. And he used to be in a white power gang and then he left. He realized that that was wrong. And now he goes around like trying to talking about it, trying to help save other people from white power gangs. And he said one of the tools they used to recruit these like young disaffected white men was music. We've all seen there American were a ton history. Of Nazi acts. punk bands, like that's a real thing, and they gave them the sense of community that they lacked. But I mean, ultimately, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. Um, and well, so, that's true. Yeah, we all know that to be true. So I don't know. I guess like enjoy your problematic faves in private, <laughs> but uh, don't wear the shirt. Don't uh, don't give them don't give them too much money. I don't know. It's complicated. We're not going to solve this problem today. Yeah, and we did pay for those misfits tickets <laughs> so we can't we get did, too much on a high horse we did indeed oh my god should we talk about the show misfits show we don't have that much time left with josh well one thing i'll say about the misfit show is it really uh helped me understand why i hate capitalism so much because it was like a sold out crowd um you know maybe fifteen thousand people and uh the t- where i was sitting was about forty dollars but the general admission where, you know, like the standing room section in front of the stage it was, was so expensive. between 200 and 400 dollars. And pretty much every like, you know, there's all different kinds of people there, older people, younger people, pretty much like two or three people in each row around me were like getting really into it and like, you know, basically moshing in their seats. And I just in a, a just world, everybody who wanted to mosh would be able to mosh. Fight for your right to mosh. Spread the mosh around. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that Misfits show was pretty good. Um, I saw Andy afterwards, and uh, he was like, just awestruck. And he goes, I feel like I just saw the Misfits. Yeah, I didn't think it was going <laughs> to be like actually seeing the Misfits. Also, a really nice moment was uh, uh, Jerry only kept breaking his bass after every other song for some reason. Uh, just, I think, so he could give it to people in the crowd. And at one point, uh, apparently a woman in a wheelchair was stage diving. Like some, They were like stage diving the wheelchair. Oh, yeah. She and he crowd just, surfed. He just gave his bass to her without breaking it. He just gave her the bass. It's like it's as if he was like <laughs> trying to get rid of all of his bases. Spread the bases around. Uh, so I recently went to Basilica Soundscape, which is one of my two favorite music things that happen every year. Um, and they both happen at this place called Basilica Hudson, which is a former factory building owned by Melissa Aftermar, actually. The, she played bass in Hole and the Smashing Pumpkins briefly. And um, her filmmaker husband owns it with her. Hole, deeply underappreciated. Oh, I mean, it depends what circles you're running in. I love Hole. We listen to Hole in this house. We respect Hole in this house. Uh, but I know many houses do not. I did go My to school does. in Olympia. Oh, shit. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, my two favorite things that happen every year are Basilica Soundscape and the 24-Hour Drone Festival, both at Basilica Hudson. So great. 
So this year, I actually didn't know as many of the acts as I usually do, but I always just trust the curators. Oh, God, I said curate in reference to music festival. Fucking send me to the gulag. But um, I trust Brandon Stosi's taste to be really good and similar to my taste. It's just like a really good assortment of intense music of different kinds. There's always like some metal, some punk, some noise, post-punk, some like weird experimental shit. There's poetry, which like isn't generally my favorite, but you know, you can, there's lots of things to do in Hudson when the poetry is happening. You can walk around or whatever. Um, so the two, my two favorite things were um, one band that I'd never even heard before, um, Big Brave, which was like kind of like a doom sludge metal band with like these long building compositions. Um, it was it was it kind of blew my mind. Like it was up there with the best shit I've ever seen. It was up there with the year that Swans played for like two hours. I mean, I was peaking on two CB at the time, but th- that just even made it only more better and more intense. Um, and their their recordings really don't do their live performances justice. But better than I, I think they were actually for me. I like them better than I like Swans because the singer, you know, the front person, the way in uh, was a Native American woman who incorporated a lot of um, chanting and just like channeled this like righteous rage of some sort into this music. And I'm always going to connect more with someone like that than um, someone like Michael Gira, who, whether or not he's a rapist, definitely seems like kind of an asshole. I mean, he was nice when I met him, but like knowing the things that I know, like, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like the... The front person is important <laughs> and she's probably had to deal with asshole dudes like that for most of her life. And maybe that's some of where the anger comes from. Um, after that, I didn't know where I could possibly go from there, but, um, oh, oh, and big brave played with Jessica Moss, the violinist, which just made it mm, that much better. And I think she played on their last album as well. Um, and then we saw lingua ignata who I had heard of before and, but I was not prepared for the intensity of this performance. It was like, I knew that I was probably going to cry. I didn't know that every single person there was going to be crying by the end. Like, I've never seen anything like it. And it's really hard to describe what it is she does. Like, um, I mean, maybe the nearest reference point is like Diamanda Gallus, but that doesn't really do it justice. She combines like she's classically trained. She combines piano with noise. And it's almost like it's maybe like how people felt seeing opera for the first time, like back in the day when that was a new thing, it was just so fucking intense. And I just felt like all the, I mean, granted I was still on 2CB, but I just felt like all the anger that I've ever felt at all the men who wronged me, just like coming out all at once. And it was beautiful. I think she's great. I mean, I, I only know the recorded stuff, but, uh, yeah, I, I haven't had the chance to see her live yet, which I've heard is also oh, another layer of what she does. But uh, yeah, everything I've heard is excellent. That's the that's the one artist that I know uh, among the ones he talked about. But it was so intense. Like she walks around with these um, lights, these like it's like a light on a string in not a string. I don't know. Technical speak. All right. Um she walks around with these lights in her hands and she looks like she's about to hurt herself constantly and like wraps them around her and she goes out into the audience and like it's so fucking intense but also somehow you feel like she's being generous and considerate with you as an audience member and I'm not even sure how I got that from her but 
I did. Like I felt cared for at the show. Like somebody next, I was crying so much. Some the girl next to me asked me if I was okay, and I'm like, "No, this is good. I'm feeling all the feelings." Wow. Yeah. Oh, I really want to see her. Yeah, definitely. I I think you definitely should. I'll, I'll, I will say it was a punishing experience. Like she was playing yeah. again at St. Vitus a few days later, and I was like, "I don't need to do that again for a while." All right. But it was beautiful. Um, so I think you, before you have to go, Josh, you had a few picks for us as well. A, f- a few music wrecks. A few right. consumer reports. <laughs> Probably too many. We can pare it down. Yeah, maybe just do like a couple. Well, uh, given the politics of the show, you should definitely play the Espectra Negro track. Um, she's a, um, currently working in Berlin, um, I'm not sure if she's. I'm not where she's sure where she's originally from. Veronica Mota, uh, but this is. She's very. It's kind of like lives at the border of like noise, industrial, techno, like sound art, like where most of the things that I've really into lately come from. And she's very, very politically intense. Um, so yeah, she's she's excellent. She's she's uh, has a new record coming out on Instruments of Discipline, uh, which is a really great label. Um, Cool. I'll check out the whole. I'm I'm intrigued. Oh, and for those who do not speak Espanol, uh, uh, oh, am I translating this right? Espectra Negra is Spanish for a black ghost, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what else did I send you? Um, should play maybe the um, Maggot Heart is cool. Um, this is sort of a. I think I think she's Swedish, living in Berlin, also. Uh, kind of, um, there's elements of the guitar playing that's very, like, kind of descended from black metal. I thought I heard somebody say that one of the members of In Solitude was in this, her, her band, but, um, it's, it's like post-black metal Joan Jett. It's really catchy and cool. today unfortunately um thank you so much for coming josh and um i hope that some of our listeners will come out to the benefit show that azur swan is playing at Transpicos next friday we're very excited 